This week's guest on Work Did Work, Dr. Don Wood. Now here, it's a very entertaining, very thought-provoking, very informative episode. Dealing with overcoming limiting beliefs and overcoming and just healing from mental trauma. Years ago, I used to always think the key to happiness, the key to success was accumulation of wealth, accumulation of things. You can separate the personal development from the business development, and that's completely wrong. That's why people ultimately do commit suicide because they're in massive amounts of pain. It has nothing to do with their wealth, nothing to do with status. It's just they can't deal with it anymore. And that's why, believe it or not, that's why I discuss a lot, mind, body, spirit. You need to have all of them aligned. Not only that, but we also tackle limiting beliefs. Limiting beliefs have been in place from your childhood experiences. A lot of childhood trauma which shaped our lives at an early age from birth to seven years old. And Yes, it's an amazing episode. Dr. Don Wood and I, great guy. We used to share the same publicist. I'm no longer with the publicist. But Dr. Don Wood, take a listen. He's an amazing guy. And mind, body, spirit. Enjoy. I hear a voice like, who do you think you are? Negative thoughts come to mind when I start thinking bold. Like, why you chasing dreams? Aren't you getting kind of old? All right, not to be biased, but my favorite podcast, and I got to say another day, another episode, and one of my favorite guests here, big introduction, Dr. Don Wood, PhD, author, speaker, founder, and CEO of the Inspired Performance Institute, and creator of the patented tip method, tip is a cutting-edge method inspired and developed through the newest developments in neuroscience and designed to clear away the effects of disturbing or traumatic events, repurpose old patterns, and set the individual's mind up for peak performance. In essence, it's reboot. It reboots the brain stuck through pattern, making it possible to enhance alpha oscillations with a non-invasive and effective shift in brainwave activity. Author of two top-selling books. You see, I have to catch up with you, Don. Only have one. Emotional concussions, and you must be out of your mind. Well, welcome. Thanks, Omar. Well, a great introduction. Very nice. Well, Actually, that, that's I just my third book. <laughs> I just finished my third one. I finished my second one, but the editor is taking taking her time with it. So that's good. See, there, I still have to catch up with you. Yeah, it, I just got to keep one ahead. Exactly. I better start working on four. I, Talking about the past, isn't that something that everybody has? Like, I would say everybody has this issue, but most people don't want to believe it. Wouldn't you agree with that? Yeah. Well, a lot of people don't understand the impact that those older events and experiences are having that basically forms who we are. And a lot of it comes, Omar, between the ages of zero and seven. It's amazing how much of our mind is affected in those early years because a child doesn't have enough life experience and 
after they turn seven, they start really now start putting meanings to all these events and experiences. Now, can you imagine giving a eight-year-old, seven-year-old child, right, the ability to interpret what they've experienced? How good is it going to be? Not very good. No, not at all. So there's where all those beliefs come in of I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not this, I'm not that. And then they stick. And so unless you get that updated, they're going to hang around subconsciously below your conscious awareness. Oh, that that explains every, everything, Doc. I mean, really? <laughs> oh, yeah. That that's that was the basis for my book because my mom was only twenty years older than me. So I mean, she did the best that she could, but she instilled like every fear in me. You know, fear of speaking to strangers because at the time, the John Walsh, Adam Walsh. Yeah. So she thought she was paranoid about that. Uh, we we were Catholic, so my mom was paranoid. This was before any of the. I guess she was ahead of her time. She she always suspected priests would come and touch me and in weird yep. places. My mom always felt my even though my mom and dad divorced and I still haven't met the man, she was always in this delusional um thing that he he would one day kidnap me. So it was always like, you know, all these fears just I mean, that's why besides the fact I was an only child, such a introvert or you know, I, when you've never met your your biological father, you know, you, you feel this unworthiness because, you know, at, at that age, you don't, you don't process and go, well, it wasn't me at the time, you know, it, it became all about me. And until I hit that head on the, the fear of abandonment or the fear of being unworthy that, that haunted me for years and years and years. Yeah. And you, you know, and you're high functioning, but those kinds of things still hang around. And Especially for a child, because if you think we're still using our primitive mind, a thousand years ago, if the father left the family, the family died, right? If you got excommunicated from the tribe, you would die. So the mind sees it in very life and death situations. I'm not safe. If dad left, right? I'm not safe. And then mom then starts instilling and reinforcing that you're not safe. So you can see where all those fears from a very early age would become a part of the way your mind is developed. Oh, yeah. And then she met the, well, a man that she was with for like the next 30 years or so when I was like about six or seven, full-blown alcoholic, manic depressant, would emotionally, physically, verbally abuse the woman. And yeah, it was a horrible experience. And my mom would always... And still this, these words of wisdom to me, well, you know what, who wants to be with a ready-made family, which once again, you know, it throws, it fell back on, you know, a six, seven-year-old processing. Oh my gosh, this is all my fault that, you know, we're going through this. My mom's going through all this. Yep. Yep. And, and that's what happens. And so I had a lady come in, she was in her forties, successful entrepreneur, but she, talked about this underlying feeling, right, of not being the same kind of thing, not worthy, not loved. It was more about being loved. And it came back to a, a time when she was six years old. She had the same thing. Her mother got pregnant at 18, didn't marry the father, and then at 22, got married to somebody else, had two more children. But when she was six years old, her stepfather said to her, your real father wants to meet you. And what she heard was him say something to the effect of, you were a mistake. 
And she said, I hated him. She goes, she never really picked up on where it came from, but she hated him. She says, I made his life miserable. I rebelled as a teenager against him. She goes, my brother and sister loved him. And yet she made his life miserable because in her mind, he called her a mistake. And so did he really do that? Or was it she misinterpreted what he was saying? It was probably a misinterpretation, but when we keep on reliving our past over and over, we keep on rewriting it, whether it's good or bad, whether it was a good experience, we make it you know phenomenal. And if it was a bad experience, we, we make it seem like it was a Stephen King horror yep. movie. Yep. Yeah. I had another situation where a lady had come in and she said when she was four years of age, her father hired a young man from the work to babysit her two sisters and her. And her older sister was about 10, and the younger sister was about a, about a year old. And so this they never had him babysit before. And when the parents left, he tried to sexually assault the 10-year-old. And she remembers the 10-year-old saying, don't do this in front of my sisters. And he, she said, let me put them away so that they don't see this. And she locked all of them into a bathroom. And this guy was pounding on the door trying to get in. She wouldn't let him in. And then by the time the parents came, he sort of like rushed right out. She says, we told our parents, right, about what happened. And she's been so angry at her parents for 30 plus years because she said, my parents didn't believe us. And I said, so how do you know they didn't believe you? And she says, well, because they never did anything. She says, we never saw the police. The police never came. Like nothing was ever done. And so what I said to her, as I said, is it possible that your parents did do something, but as a four-year-old, right, you may not have known about it. And that had never occurred to her because that memory was looping that my parents, right, ignored us. They were probably in shock when they heard it. And maybe, and as a four-year-old, you're, you're looking at your parents thinking that they're going to come to your safety. And if you don't see that, then in her mind, she got stuck with that belief that my parents never believed me that this happened. And so we had to go through that kind of a process. And I said, did you ever see that guy at your dad's work again? And she thought about it. She goes, no. And I said, is it possible that maybe the police did confront him? He confessed and it was over. You know, he maybe got whatever happened to him happened to him, but you wouldn't have known it as a four-year-old. That had never occurred to her because she was stuck in the loop of her parents and the way they responded. Well, you you read my mind because I was, my, my next question was going to be, you you said it. Well, they never saw the man again. Clearly, if they didn't believe them at all, he'd be reoccurring. This would be a reoccurring nightmare of them trying to run, trying to hide away from this man. But since you know he was never seen again, something happened. Like at the ages of four, five, six, seven, one, our our memories are. I mean, I I can't remember most of the stuff from my my elementary school years. Uh, but you know that that traumatic experience she just put it, put it in her head that mom and dad were like ah who cares let, yep. let's let's move on let, let another day another dollar and she was angry at her parent for all those years she said i was really angry at them all that time and nobody ever talked about it so they never if she ever brought it up it was sort of swept under the carpet her sister right didn't want to talk nobody wanted to talk about it 
So in her mind, she's looping through that event and, and stuck. And so we have to get her through that and to get to another, a new understanding in order to start that healing process. Most people, though, they're stuck in that loop of their past, their their trauma. They keep on reliving it, and then they don't understand that your life will never move forward. Yes, we get older and the years go by, but that traumatic experience bleeds into so many different aspects of our life. Our relationships are flawed, uh, yep. not, not on a personal level. You can't have a normal relationship with a loved one because you just literally bleed out your wounds until you heal. And so many of us are so wounded and so many of us are flawed, but it's so hard to say, Hey, I need help or I need to fix this problem. A lot of times based on society, it's, Hey, let's suck it up. Let's just sweep it all under the rug and let's, let's just go on our, our separate ways or different ways. Yeah. Because it, brings in, you come in with your own set of what I call atmospheric conditions. And so you both now come in with your own set and you could activate your partner's, you know, responses because now they're filtering through what they've experienced and now you activate their nervous system. And so all of a sudden, then what happens is, is when we go into that active state of fight or flight, we're not very good at communicating. Because now it's all about survival. And mm -hmm. so then it becomes a defensive. So you become defensive. And then how well does that work in a relationship? I mean, you coach, you know, lots of people in business. I mean, how good are they when they're defensive? They're not very effective leaders. Well, the number one rule in, in business, well, really the number one rule in anything in life, let's not do rash decisions. Let's not do decisions based off our emotions, either when we're on that high, on, on the peak, a lot of times we do irrational decisions, as well as the simple fact that we're in that valley and we feel like, you know, out of desperation, we need to do something different. And we do something knee-jerk. We do something completely irrational without just taking a step back, without just taking a moment to breathe, to literally process what is going on in, in the situation, and then make a decision both on a personal and a business level, the more that we can do that, the more successful we will become both in our personal lives and our professional lives. But yes, unfortunately, a lot of times we do our decisions based on an extreme high or low. And, and that's exactly what I deal with in, in terms of the program I developed called TIP. The idea is, is your autonomic nervous system will respond 400 millions of a second before you're consciously aware of it because it becomes a fight or flight response or a freeze response. That happens before the logical, reasonable part of the brain is even actively involved. And that's why you said that knee-jerk reaction. It's an autonomic, just like if you took a little hammer and you hit your knee and you said, I'm not going to let my knee, you know, jerk. It's, yeah. it's going to jerk. Exactly. You could, you could all day long say, I'm not going to let it happen. I'm going to do everything I can do. I'm going to stop. It's not going to jerk. It's going to jerk. And that's what your mind is doing because it's filtering through all the experiences that you've had in your life that look similar or same to this situation. And it's already responding before you can even think. There's no thinking involved. Now, most of your patients, do they know that they've had this past trauma or is this something that you guys have to 
you and the the client have to do a deep dive because a lot of times we just like to bury our our emotional wounds or trauma. Well, most situations, yes, they they have a pretty good idea that they've had some trauma in their life. Sometimes what happens is, is as we get into it, things will start to pop up that they hadn't thought about in a long time. So even though they may come in with a an idea of what they know their trauma is, all of a sudden they'll go, gosh, I never thought about this, you know, in a long time. I forgot about this situation or that situation. Because part of what our program does is gets them into a very relaxed state. And when you're in that relaxed state, you go into flow. And all of a sudden, if the mind knows what we're working on, some of these traumas, then they start popping up things that you may not have remembered before. I'll give you a great example. I had a lady who she said to me, well, I've had a pretty good childhood, no real trauma that I can think of. And I asked her, I said, well, can you think of any event in your lifetime that may have been disturbing or, you know, may not be traumatic, but the emotional concussions I talk about. And she thought about it. She goes, yeah, okay. She goes, when I was about six years old and I was doing this in a group. So she was a demonstration in the group. And as she started to talk, she says, I was about six, I was in church and, uh, all of, she says, I started to talk to my siblings and my grandmother took the hairbrush out of her purse and hit me on the head and said, stop talking, you're in church. And then she started to just sob. And she goes, I just realized I lost my voice that day. She says, I've never stood up for myself. I let people push me around. She goes, I've never connected that. Now, was her mo- grandmother trying to do that? No. Grandmother was just saying, stop talking, you're in church. But what did a six-year-old hear? We don't want to hear you. We don't want to hear what you have to say. And so that literally shut her down. And it's hard to believe, but that's actually what does happen. Well, that's hard to believe, too, because so many of us have experiences like that. But we we never put like two and two together and say, well, this is going to this trauma, which doesn't seem big when 49, a story like that, you, you just brush it off. But the the mind of a 49-year-old, the world of a 49-year-old is completely different than when you're six. Yep. At six, that had a profound effect on her. She didn't realize, you know, how much that was affecting her. But how I know a trauma is affecting you is just exactly what happened to her. As soon as she started to talk about it, at first she thought, oh, yeah, I remember this event. And then as she started to talk about it, what is she doing? She's going to go into memory. And then all that data starts flooding in. And when that data shows up and she starts to cry, that means it's active. The mind is actually living it in real time. When she was telling that story, she was a six-year-old telling that story. And that's how the mind responds. So she had that knee-jerk reaction, like getting hit in the knee. She wasn't originally thinking, hey, that when I'm telling you the story, I'm, I'm going to become an, I'm going to let my emotional guard down and I'm going to start sobbing. I'm going to start crying uncontrollably. This is something she couldn't control because it felt like it was happening at that given moment. Exactly. And that information is coming in in real time. So your subconscious mind is seeing everything that's happening right now in real time. But this is where this glitch and error message that I talk about is coming from. If your mind's looking at memory and your subconscious operates in real time, when it looks at the data from the memory, when does it think the memory is actually happening? Right now. Mm -hmm. So then it activates the autonomic nervous system. We're in danger, right? It's time to run or fight or do something. 
So, but the mind can't stop it because it's an autonomic response, just like the knee jerk. So all this trauma from our past, our, our developmental years, this this is like a big factor when a lot of us do have the self-destructive patterns and behaviors then, correct? Yep. yep. And in actual, one of the things that I always say to people is, I don't believe it's self-destructive. I don't believe our minds are sabotaging us. I think it's trying to protect us. So what I mean by that is, if all of a sudden you start doing a particular behavior, your mind is trying to avoid the pain. Mm-hmm. Come up with another way. Do it differently, right? Even though it may not be beneficial. Your mind's always trying to get away from pain. That's his biggest motivation. Safety, reduce pain. So I, I tell the story of a, an article that I, I read about a German sniper during World War II. And what he said was when they fought against the Russians, he said the Russians didn't have a lot of weapons. They just had a lot of people. So the Russian strategy was to pick up weapons, charge at the German line. And his, his job as a sniper was to shoot them. And so he would shoot them, and then another Russian would pick up that weapon and keep on running. And he said he figured out how to stop them. He says, I stopped shooting them to kill them. He says, I shot them in the stomach. He says, then when the next Russian came to pick up that weapon, he had heard the screams and the crying and the pain that this person was in. That was a bigger motivator to stop because death stops the pain, right? But that kind of pain, getting shot in the stomach is, they say, the most painful place to get shot. And so when they heard all of this screaming and yelling, that was really a bigger deterrent. That's how our minds work. Well, it, it's that old adage, too, that motivation doesn't work as much as, as desperation or, or trying to avoid injury, pain, death. Anything yeah. to do with injury. The mind doesn't like pain and it wants to stop pain now because your subconscious is fully present operating in the moment. So when does it want pain to stop? Now. ASAP. So why were people jumping out of the buildings at 9-11? Not to die, but to stop the pain. Now, the logical part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, our reasonable, logical, intellectual part of our brain would say, well, this is not very good. This isn't going to save us. But the mind's not worried about being saved. It's worried about stopping the pain right now. And so by moving away from the pain, they solve the problem in the moment. And because your subconscious is always present, it can't see consequences to actions because it has to be able to relate to time. Because it doesn't relate to time, it sees the action as the solution to the pain right now. That's why people get stuck in addiction. So what I always say to people who you know have an addiction issue, it's not about your morals or character or willpower. It's about pain. And your mind found a resource to stop the pain. So why would people take drugs and alcohol, right? The logical part of the brain would say, I'm going to get addicted. That's not a good thing to do. But your subconscious doesn't see it that way. It sees it as a resource to stop the pain now. And because you repeat it over and over, your mind's building a code. But it solved the problem in the moment, and that's all it's concerned about. So your subconscious, when when you you pick up the the bottle of pills, or you pick you pick up the six pack, or you snort the cocaine, or you hit the hit the rock, all those all those jargons, your subconscious is like, let me just get rid of this pain asap. I, I, it overrides 
the, the conscious saying, yep. hey, you know what? This is a bad idea. <laughs> We're going to get addicted fast to this heroin or to these pills. No, because it can't see time. And so survival will always override reason and logic. It's the number one tool, right, that the mind uses. It's all about survival. So if your subconscious mind's in the present and it wants to stop the pain and it uses a resource to stop the pain, it can't see the consequences to that resource. It only sees the resource stopping the pain. It's the logical part of the mind that realizes that if I keep doing this, I'm going to get addicted. Or if I use it, it's not good. But the survival brain will always override that every single time. No, that's amazing because I, I always thought of it as a person saying, hey, I'm not, I'm not going to get addicted to smoking or, or shooting up or doing recreational drugs. I, I'm, not, I'm going to be the one that beats the addiction. That's not me. But it's more of a fight or flight saying, I'm tired. I'm tired of the pain. I need to shut this off immediately. And I work with so many people who have been in addiction and they're told all about the shame and the guilt. What's wrong with you? Look at what you're doing to your family. Look at what you're doing to yourself, right? They have built a code because our mind is just like a computer. It codes. So how do we learn how to ride a bike, play a guitar? We repeat it over and over. What does our mind do? Builds a code, a neural pathway on how to respond. So what you're teaching your brain is that every time I take that, you know, put that needle in my arm, right, I'm stopping the pain. And so that becomes the code and the code just operates. Subconscious mind doesn't think, it responds, just like you said about the knee-jerk reaction. So if the 95% of your brain that's running the subconscious, running everything, can't see a consequence, right, to an action, can you see how easy it is to get addicted? Oh, yeah. But that, that's what makes it crazy. You just said we try to shame. We try to shame people into, you know, morally, oh, look, look at all the damage that this has done to you, to your family. But you see your point. It's not like that. That's the subconscious. Clearly, they, they just want to operate on, I, I need to get away from this pain. Right. But yet society, we still believe that if we shame a person, that they'll go straight. That, you know, how could you do this? Well, no, nobody clearly, I'd say what the majority of people do not want to hurt anybody. This isn't about hurting anybody. No. This is more about the look, looking for relief. It's all about survival. So the mind wants to survive. If it's got pain, pain is a threat to your survival. And then what you did is when you took that drink or you took that drug, right? You solved the problem. So what did your mind just learn from that experience? How do I solve this pain? Well, let's go back to that resource. And then the more you repeat it, the stronger the code is. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden we keep telling these people like, you're, you're, you're weak. There's something wrong with you. Why would you keep doing this? They couldn't stop that that way. It's very difficult to override that. Now, some people have gotten out of addiction, you know, through that kind of way, but it's not very effective. And that's why in AA and NA, they tell them you'll never, ever not be an addict because they never fixed what started it. You have to fix the trauma or what created the pain. Otherwise, it's that fuel burning on the sideline that can activate that, that neural pathway again, that code. 
So that's what we do is we first get to the root cause, get that taken care of, and then teach them how to build new codes. So then your program can help an addict rewire their mind into getting pushing away towards this pain that was caused in the, at the developmental stage of their lives. Yep. So we hit the first, I was just talking to a guy last night. He was telling me about his, his daughters. He was actually a police officer that his wife abducted his children, took them into a cult and they were in that cult for a couple of years. And that was when they were three and five, when they were taken into that cult. And so the one daughter now is an alcoholic. The other one is having all kinds of mental health issues. And yet their father did a very good job of trying to raise them afterwards, but nobody ever fixed the root cause of the problem. And now it's showing up in all kinds of different ways. So even and so both of them got into the military. One got discharged because she couldn't stop drinking. They tried to help her. They put her into rehab. Right, but she couldn't stop. The reason she couldn't stop is her mind was not okay with what happened to her as a child, even though that's not conscious, it's subconscious. And so that keeps running, that loop keeps on running. And how does she turn off the loop? Takes a drug, takes a drink, right? And it temporarily numbs her. So the loop stops temporarily. And then when the alcohol or drug wears off, starts running again. You can see how easy it is to get stuck in that pattern. And it's not about character and willpower, morals. It's about pain and finding a resource and then building a code to stop the pain. So until you hit the root and until you hit the underlying issues, it doesn't matter how many self-development books, business development books, you can go to all the rah, 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 all the woo, woo, all, all the different seminars. And until you hit your, your problems head on, the ones that are deep rooted, you'll you'll keep on running into the same patterns over and over again. Because you're just going to be managing them, coping with them, living with them, right? But you're basically still dealing with them. The idea is to get it to stop. And if you don't get that root cause taken care of, it's going to continue to show up and pop up at times. And that's why, again, so many people, you know, go into rehab and had one guy who went through our program, he'd been in rehab multiple times. And he said, I can, I can tell you the difference between your program and what rehab is. He says, when I get out of rehab, I couldn't stop thinking about wanting to use. It was this constant running, use, 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 find it, find it, find it. He says, I got out of your program. I don't think about it anymore. It's not coming up anymore because we solved the problem that the mind was looking for. That's what it was trying to do. It was trying to get a resolution to this trauma, which you weren't doing. So it's going to keep on saying, Omar, fix it. Omar, fix it. Fix what happened to us when we were six. You can't do it because it's not happening anymore. But your mind is looking at the trauma in real time, thinking it's still happening. That's the glitch and error message that has to get fixed. So then that explains, quote unquote, the seminar junkie. The person that that reads all the books, that goes to all the seminars, yet they keep on. It seems like they're running on a hamster wheel because no matter what, they're, they're still, no matter what action they take or no matter what book they read, they still find themselves hitting the same patterns over and over. And that's why people are like, why haven't you changed if you keep on doing all these things to better yourself? 
Yeah. So the seminar becomes their drug. The book becomes their new drug. So they'll, I mean, how many times you probably see it all the time when you meet people, they'll say, oh, I just went and heard this guy speak and he spoke right to me. I heard what he was saying, right? That was the coping. That was the drug. And then it wears off. And then it's like, oh, I still feel the pain. Well, of course they do, right? So all those things are good. I'm not saying not to read oh, no, seminars, yeah, of course. seminars, but what you're doing is you're basically just finding another coping mechanism, finding another way to stop some pain temporarily. But that pain is going to keep running. You got to go in there and cut it out, take it out. Well, then technically the, the naysayers and naysayer and the haters are right when they say, you know, motivation does not work because you you can see it as something as like a Band-Aid on, mm-hmm. onto the issue. But after, after, after you walk on the coals, after you do the plunge pool, after you're in a room full of people, like-minded people or yeah. You, you get all the dopamine pumped into your brain. As soon as you get back to reality, yep. it all wears off. Yep. And then all of a sudden the loop starts back up again, and then you start looking for another solution. It's, it's even like one of the things, like so many people who have trauma smoke. I mean, just go to a rehab center. They're all smoking, right? Everybody in that rehab center, and they let them smoke because they stay calmer. So when I say to people, I say, what do you think you're addicted to when you smoke cigarettes? And most people will say, well, I'm addicted to nicotine. And I said, what if I told you you're not addicted to nicotine? I said, well, what am I addicted to? And I said, nicotine has almost the identical chemical compound of a neurotransmitter right, called acetylcholine. Acetylcholine is a natural neurotransmitter in your brain, right? Acetylcholine is the precursor to the release of dopamine. So when that nicotine hits the brain, the brain thinks it's acetylcholine and it's the time to start releasing dopamine the same way your brain would if it saw acetylcholine. So your brain thinks acetylcholine or nicotine is acetylcholine releases dopamine. So I said, what you're actually addicted to is feeling good because as soon as you take the nicotine into your bloodstream, your blood, your your brain starts to release dopamine so you feel better, but it doesn't last because as soon as the nicotine clears the bloodstream, you need another cigarette. That's why they get stuck. They keep smoking one after another after another because they're looking for that dopamine relief to stop their pain. So then it's really just jumping from one addiction to something else, which is really just underlying to mask the pain or, or to numb the trauma. Yeah. So I had a lady come in. She'd been on heroin for seven years. And she said to me, She said, I told my therapist I was coming in to see you, and he told me that I have to be honest with you and upfront and let you know that I have self-destructive behavior, because this is what she's been told for seven years. And I just smiled at her, and I said, really, what would make you think you're self-destructive? And she looks at me, and she goes, I'm sticking a needle in my arm with heroin. Don't you think that's self-destructive? And I said to her, I said, no, I don't. I think you're trying to feel better. And I bet you when you stuck the needle in your arm, you felt better. She goes, yeah. I says, now the substance you're using is destructive, but you're not. I said, that substance was temporarily stopping your pain. I said, you've had a lot of trauma. She goes, oh, you have no idea how much trauma I've had. I said, well, I have a pretty good idea because you wouldn't wake up one morning wanting to stick a needle in your arm with heroin, right? That's not something that naturally occurs to people who don't have pain, right? That's coming from the pain and trying to find a solution. You probably tried many different things. And heroin is what you turned up and found. Some people found 
drugs. Some people found cocaine. Some people found alcohol. Some people find sex. Some people find food, right? All of those things are to temporarily block the pain. It's a distraction. It's pulling you away from the pain. That says nothing about your morals, nothing about your character or willpower. Yet everybody will tell you that that's your problem. You're weak. There's something wrong with you. You're broken. You're defeated. Look at what you're doing to your family and your children and all this. But it has nothing to do with that. Oh, it never works either. No, no. So they just get stuck in this loop. So many cases of people, you know, who have come through. One lady, 17 years in an addiction from when she was 16. She was on everything you can imagine. Lost her daughter. They took away her daughter. Her husband ended up ODing. And so her family were raising her daughter. And so she OD'd twice before she came to see me. And then when she came in, I said to her, her whole testimonials on our site, you can watch her whole development. I said to her, I says, Michelle, there's nothing wrong with you. And there's nothing wrong with your mind. You've had a lot of trauma and your mind has been trying to fix it, trying to stop it. And I said, and she says, yeah, I have had a lot of trauma. And I said, well, that's what your mind's been trying to do. And you can't do what your mind's been asking you is to stop what happened. So the way to block it was to take these drugs. So she went through our program. This is three and a half years ago. She's totally off of everything. She's working full time. She The courts gave her her daughter back. She's reconciled with her family. She just bought her second house, right? And just and eating so healthy like super healthy. And all of that just came from, she says, you treated me with so much respect. She says, that was a big part of it. She says, nobody ever treated me like that. It was always about what's wrong with you. Why are you doing this to your family? You lost your daughter. She didn't want to lose her daughter. She loved her daughter, but she couldn't get out of the loop. So awareness overall is key. Oh, for sure. And that one of the things I do in the program is I spend a lot of time Basically, we would do a four-hour program, but the first hour and a half to two hours is all about the science, all about what I've learned on how the brain works and how we can fix it. Because when you understand what the problem is, you can understand how we can fix it. Now, how how hard, though, is, is it a long process to find awareness, or does it happen instantaneous, or it just depends? Very fast. Very fast. Generally, the thing I hear constantly as I'm going through the process with them is it's like light bulbs are going off. They're going, this is making so much sense. But, you know, you take a talk about people in addiction and they start hearing about there's nothing wrong with you. Can you see how your mind can get stuck in this groove and this pattern because of all the pain you've experienced in your life? Doesn't it make sense that your mind would try to figure out a way to stop the pain? You just happen to find these resources. People find different resources to stop that pain. But there's nothing wrong with you, of course you could get stuck in this. And that's why you see people who have no money or totally broke to people who are super rich. Look at all the famous people in the world who have all the money, all the fame, everything they could pot. And they go, how in the world would they get into addiction? Right? They've got everything. And then they've got all the money in the world to go to rehab and all these different things. And they still keep falling back because nobody ever looked at, and they'll say, oh yeah, we know it's trauma and we're going to, talk about trauma, but you have to fix the trauma, not just talk about it. Well, society, we always, when it comes to even suicide to a celebrity or a wealthy person, and they're like, how can that happen? He's, he or she's got all the money in the world, all the resources. They should be 
completely happy, which clearly, you know, it just means that they've had a lot of demons or trauma in their past that just went unresolved for such a long period of time. And and suicide, again, what I always talk about with suicide, suicide's not about wanting to die. Suicide is about wanting to stop the pain. And again, if your mind can't see consequences, right, to your action, can you see how even thinking about taking your life, right, doesn't become part of what the mind looks at? If you take your life, when did you stop the pain? Now. And it's, it's you're doing it at an irrational yeah, they're, yeah, zero logic. It's not like a person that's that that's calm, collected. They're not like you know writing down. Well, yeah, th- these are all the people that it's affecting. These are all the people that that are are going to be emotionally scarred. No, they're they're doing a decision based on an irrational time when they're we're going through immense pain. Yep, yeah, and I've I've seen it all the time. It's really interesting. The last two weeks, I've had uh, a father who lost his 25-year-old son, and then a family. Actually, I've already done two of the sisters, and I, the mom and dad are coming in this week to go through it. Their 15-year-old son committed suicide about uh, six weeks ago. And what I've been able to do is explain what their son was going through. Because all of a sudden, it's like, well, if I hadn't have said this, or I had have done this, or I should have changed this, or how didn't I see it coming? You know, so they start looping in their own mind that that day of or days before, and then they get stuck in that loop of trying to fix it. You know, I had one father who his daughter was living with him, but the mother had been really in the severe addiction. So she created all kinds of trauma for the daughter. And so he thought, you know, I'm, I'm handling my daughter. I'm doing the best I can to raise her. She was 15 years old. And he said, they went out for the day, had a great day, came home, right. Had dinner and then started baking cookies. And he says, and we are having fun baking the cookies. And his daughter said, you know, I'm going to go to bed. I'm really tired. And she, you know, goes up to bed and he finishes the cookies and thinks, you know, I'm just going to go. If she's still awake, I'll bring her a cookie. And he goes upstairs and she's hung herself. And he goes, how could that happen after we had this great day, right? Is the pain when she got into that sitting by herself again, just became overpowering to her. And it's sad. It's sad. But, you know, now he's got all this guilt. How didn't I see it? How could you possibly have seen it? Or how could I have stopped it? How sure. could I have stopped it? Yeah. And then what happens is his mind is now saying, well, if I had have done this and I had have done that. So what is the subconscious here? There's something that can be done. Because it's hearing that in real time too. I should have done this. So your mind will say, we'll do it. Because it's looping through that action. Now, Don, with your tip method, I know it's rebooting the system. But how long is it until someone, one of your clients, sees results? Is it instantaneous? Like they have that aha, the light bulb goes off, and they're like, they stop these patterns? Or is it most do? Yeah, most do. So when I go through, so I've worked with post traumatic stress. Once we reset the memory, that sort of becomes, in most cases, pretty instantaneous. But we only work on two or three events. There may have been multiple events. So 
We have 30 days of audios that they continue to listen to that reinforces the session and keeps the updating going. So your mind will continue to process a lot of that data as you continue, especially when you start to go to sleep that night. Mm -hmm. But people in most situations can actually start talking about that trauma where they couldn't before. And that brings this instant relief. And that's how we know, right, that it started the updating process. So I've worked with people who had had, you know, the lady at the Vegas Vegas shooting. Remember when the that uh, person yeah. shot all those people at that concert, right? And Claire Bay. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so she was actually in charge of the entire concert. And she, her testimonials on our site, she was really struggling. And I came to see her, took her through the four-hour process, and she recorded a testimonial saying, I just don't get it. I don't understand how he did this, but... I can think I'm not happy about the day. We're not going for happy. We're just stopping that emotional dysregulation. So then she could talk about it without shaking and crying. And that was because her mind stopped looping through it, trying to get her into an action to make it stop. So it's it's quick. And it, it's amazing, Don, because I I always thought the problems and issues were based on us reliving when I say history or her story, her story, something that might have happened two years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, your your wife or your husband left you. I never really saw it as the deep-rooted problem of something traumatic that happened to you between the ages of like one through seven. A lot of it comes back. So I worked with a lady who at the Boston Marathon. And so she was at the bomb. She was four feet from the first bomb that went off and lost her leg. And so anyway, she went through the program and she said the thing that was the most revealing to her, she thought that that was her biggest trauma because most people would. She goes, actually, now what I discovered is how much trauma I had as a child. And if I didn't heal that, right, just the Boston Marathon bombing on its own was a big trauma, but she also had childhood trauma that we also got to and resolved. That's the key. You got to get that early childhood trauma addressed as well. So it's a process. Unlike, I mean, I know my mom would always say, forget it, or, you know, it is what it is. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Great advice, but it doesn't work. Oh, I I know if only it was that easy. But then again, like I said, we, we, we could just shame a person after after they started drinking to stop or after they started using heroin or coke, cocaine, hey, stop it. You're making yourself look bad and you're making us look bad. It would just be instantaneous results. Because if the logical part of the mind, your, your intellectual logical part of your mind was in charge, none of that would happen because it would shut it off instantly. Right? But it's the instinctual right survival part of the brain that's operating in the present that is continuing to loop through old data, seeing it in real time, calling for an action. How does it call for an action? It uses an emotion. The purpose of fear is to escape a threat. Purpose of anger is to attack a threat. So if you think about something that happened to you 20 years ago and your heart's pounding in your chest, what does your mind think? It's happening now. Mm -hmm. We need to run. So it's calling for that action, but you can't take the action. How do you shut it off? I'll stick a needle in my arm. I'll do something to distract it, to shut it down temporarily. Or or join some something like a, a cult. You you and I or a lot of people just knee jerk, they're like, oh, 
what a bunch of idiots. Why, yep. why, who, who would want to join a cult? That sounds so stupid. But yet there's stories upon stories going back from Jones Creek before Jones Creek till now. And, you know, I, were these people stupid? And, and no, they were just running away from something. And they needed to either that sense of belonging or that sense of I need to get rid of the pain. It could be one of those two things. It could also come from the fact if they didn't have any kind of safety as a child, now all of a sudden this cult becomes their family, becomes their safety. You know, a thousand years ago, the tribe was very important, right? Because if you didn't didn't have the tribe, you were now susceptible to wild animals, other tribes, right? So you had to have safety. And so it sounds hard to believe, but our mind still has those instincts built into it that we need to fit in. We need to fit in to survive. Well, there, there's that old saying, too, that that's why all of us want to have that feeling of acceptance because, you know, we're we're not that much evolved from being the caveman. We're, we're not. Being shamed or being let go, the tribe meant instantaneous death. Just sure. like our our mind, our subconscious still feels that way. Yep, absolutely. And you think because, oh, we're so sophisticated, we have these cars and airplanes and computers, we're pretty advanced. We're not really that advanced. 5% of your mind is very advanced. That's our conscious mind, our logical, reasonable, intellectual part of our mind that can create things that we couldn't do before. But 95% of your mind is operating on a primitive instinctual survival basis. And that runs the day if there's a survival threat. And memory keeps activating the survival threat. It's a glitch. So we still operate on the fight or flight method pretty much. Pretty much. Yep. yep. Even though our world is completely different, it's not as dangerous as it was even 100 years ago. right? But it's still, we still have our own set of dangers, but it's completely different but our mind still operates with the old instincts. And so that's the good news and the bad news. The good news is, is because we know that, which is what we do in our program, is we're going to use that to our advantage. We're going to get our mind to understand that we're safe, right? And to get that update done. Well, Don, I I just live down the street from you. I know you're based in Orlando. Yeah. But do people have to go to you or because with the advent of technology, we can do this through zoom and other methods yeah i've got two zoom sessions this week wednesday and thursday with people um so i can do it in zoom we also have an online version of it so it's actually just a series of videos it's the same program but instead of being with me it's just me guiding you through the whole process that works very effectively we're also now doing a lot of groups so on friday i had 18 people from a doctor's office and I took the whole group through the program at the same time. And it works very effectively. Now, what are the best ways of finding, finding you, hiring you, becoming ingrained to the tip method, all the other good stuff? So check out our site. So, we're, so I'm on Instagram, LinkedIn, all of those kinds of things. But our website is the inspiredperformanceinstitute.com. You can also go to get tip. G-E-T, and then T-I-P-P.com, get tip. And you can also 
you can learn a little bit more about how the program works. There's lots of testimonials on there that you may relate to. It could be from a business standpoint. Maybe you've got, you know, you're not performing at your highest level. And if you notice, we call it an inspired performance program, not a trauma therapy. What I say is trauma is just interfering with your highest level of performance. So even very high performing executives, CEOs, athletes I work with, the idea is as long as that loop is running, it's affecting your performance. You have another gear. Let's get you to your highest gear. And literally until you get past that, there's always going to be something. You can find some level of success, but until you hit that root cause, there's always going to be something that pushes you back or you hit that wall, you hit that ceiling and you feel, and you don't know why, but it's subconsciously your trauma that happened as a childhood that won't let you get past and go, go right past your ceiling. Yep. And, and again, so I work with, I love working with athletes because you can see it so quickly. So I worked with a, a runner who was running in the world championships of Spartan, the Spartan races. Great yeah, runner. I've done, I mean, I've done plenty, but I, I've, not, I've, I've just finished them. <laughs> okay. Well, this guy's competing in the world championships and he's a special forces green beret. So very, very talented, successful guy. But there were three guys that were winning most of the races. And so they asked me if I would work with him on the Friday before the world championships on Sunday. So I took him through, his name is Rob Killian. And I took him through the program and he ran in the world championships and won it. And what I said to him, I said, Rob, I didn't make you a faster runner. You were always that fast. We just released that extra energy that was being held back because your mind was feeling some threats. And that's so that's all it is. We all have that extra power. All we have to do is get it released. And that's what we can help do. Just just that within itself. I mean, we we are all on the verge of success. Some are successful. But just imagine being able to pass, go past that. And and trust me, I, I, I know about until you hit it head on, it will keep on showing up all, all this trauma, business, personal, every aspect, every relationship until you you hit what's been bothering you. Exactly. And that's what we can we can reach that, and then that's going to change your performance. Not only performance in terms of, you know, money side or athletic side or whatever, just the performance in your relationships. If you can get your nervous system to come back into regulation, imagine how much better a communicator you are. So it can be a better communicator with your children, with your spouse, with your employees, right? With your customers. That's why the doctor wanted to do it because she went through the program and said it was so life-changing for her. She says, I want to change the culture of my office. I want my whole office to deal with my patients with the way I'm feeling to deal with my patients. So all 18 of them went through it at the same time. And we've already talked to a a few of them who are just saying, one lady who had some severe trauma, she says, there was just a lightness this weekend. She says, it's usually pretty heavy. And she says, I just felt light. And I was able to talk to people about my trauma because it only happened a year ago. She says, without that heaviness. So imagine how that's going to translate into her serving other people, other patients from the from the doctor's office. Absolutely going to change it. Big time. Yep. Don, you're you're an amazing person and you're looking to help create positive change. 
And so we're like-minded people. It's not all about chasing the dollar, but actually helping people. Yeah. You're yeah. all about being in service, brother. And a tip, well, I'm wearing a hat now, so I yeah. can off to you. <laughs> yeah. And, and again, I love your whole saying is, what if it did work? It does. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Trust me, I, I, I can vouch for you 100%. I, I didn't realize I had like a, you know, abandonment issues and it bled out into everything until I realized that, that the, my formative years, I, it had nothing to do with my high school, my college years and anything after. It was all the trauma from my childhood. Yep. And all you had to do is get to the, that root cause. And they like said, so many people will say, you know, it sounds too good to be true. Like, how can you do all this so quickly? Well, our minds and bodies are designed to heal. All we have to do is reset it. You know, if you came in with a broken leg, we just reset the leg. We don't have to worry about it healing. It will heal. Well, those are, those are cynical people that yeah. are quit on their dreams or they never dreamt. So it's always like, how can something help when they've given up a long time ago? Yeah. And, th- and that's why, you know, what you're doing, helping people see that, right? It's so powerful because a lot of times they, they have given up or they don't think they can do it, right? Sometimes, you know, why does Tiger Woods have a coach, right? Because sometimes he can't see the little flaws that are in his swing that it takes somebody else to point them out. Well, we always look at everything through our one perspective. It's always best to have someone looking at it through a different perspective yeah. that that can catch that flaw that Tiger Woods would never he, in his mind in his subconscious and everything. He's like, I'm doing the same thing. No, you're not. You just tweaked it just a little. Yeah. Now he can't see it, but his coach can. And then just even knowing what to do. Cause one of the biggest things is, and, and this is where I know you probably help so many people It's just to say, you know, they want to change. They want to make a difference. They want to do something different. They don't know what to do, though. And Mm -hmm. so with your experience and and your knowledge, you can say, well, here's what's worked for most people that I talk to, or here's what you should try. Because they may, because if they've tried two or three things and they failed at it, then that's when they give up. Oh, well, they they give up. This this isn't for us. This this is for other other people, circumstances. That's when we're... You know, I, I wasn't born lucky. Right. <laughs> well, I don't think any of us were, to be to be honest. <laughs> no, no, it's true. All righty, hey, thank, Don. Thank you for your time. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for for discussing something very, very dear, near and dear to my heart. And oh. hey, here, here's to you changing lives. And you know, all 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 you're doing is taking off those blinders and helping them see what's what's truly ahead of them. Well, I, I appreciate the time and being on here. And I guess we're going to see each other uh, in I'll a month or so in you. Tampa. In about a month. I, I told you that on, on your podcast, I was going to be seeing you in, in the nick of time. So yeah, and we'll be seeing each other more and more just because. Yeah, we're close enough. We should I'm definitely close get enough. That. And I, I love like-minded people. I, yeah, I've had me too. people in my life and mentors that were all about the money and there, there's more to life than just chasing dollars. Yep, absolutely. All righty, Don. Well, thank great you. talking to you, Omar. Take I appreciate care. it. For sure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
escape is our own mind. I was trapped inside that prison all for a long time. To make it happen, you gotta take action. Just imagine what if it did work.